Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist, with me, your host, Chloe Timms. In this episode... I'm talking to Eloise Smith about her middle grade novel, Sister to a Star. Eloise is a former Olympic fencer and she won three Commonwealth gold medals. She then became an advertising creative director, working for some of the world's biggest brands. In this episode, we talk about what advertising taught her about writing for children, her unusual route to publication where her book deal came before her agent, and writing something personal that you care about rather than what you think children will like. But first, here's Eloise with an excerpt from Sister to a Star. Evie burst into the Academy of Stunt Fencing. Monsieur, she shouted. Monsieur! The words bounced around the cell, echoing off the gym equipment and high wires. Monsieur emerged from a door at the back. Evie had never seen it open before. He seemed surprised to see her. You fenced well today, Mademoiselle Evie, he said, carefully locking the door behind him, despite failing to attend to my lesson last night. And then, what are you doing here? I, I, I could ask you the same thing, said Evie, striding down the cell. She tried to keep her voice firm, but squeaks slipped out. I was remembering an old friend. But what business is it of yours, young lady? said Monsieur. He moved forward, encouraging her away from the door. What was behind it? Or whom? Evie stepped backwards, her mind simmering with suspicion. She glanced across at the sword rack. Where's Tallulah? She pushed her bottom lip forward, feeling Monsieur's shadow darken over her. Boff, how should I know? She is a very absent pupil, no? I know what you've done, said Evie, backing up towards the sword rack. And what is this? Monsieur stepping forward. A smile played on his lips. Evie took another step back. She was pressed against the sword rack now. She clutched the cool handle of an epée. You've kidnapped Tallulah, said Evie, whipping out the sword. 
You've got her behind that door, haven't you? She pointed the sword at Monsieur. And now you're going to give her back. The accusation was so big, it seemed to fill the whole gym, squeezing out the air and making Evie struggle to breathe. Monsieur snorted, a strange, small sort of sound, like a pin being removed from a hand grenade. And then a silence. Hi Louise, welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you here with me today to discuss your middle grade novel, Sister to a Star. Hello Chloe, lovely to be here. So can you start by introducing your novel to us and telling us what Sister to a Star is all about? Okay, so it's um, an action adventure thriller for nine to 12 year olds. That's what middle grade usually refers to. And it's called Sister to a Star because it's about the twin of a child star. And so it's set against the bright lights of Hollywood. And really it's a story about sibling rivalry between two very different twins. Um, And so when Tallulah, one of the twins, lands the starring role in a swashbuckling movie, her resentful twin Evie is sent to Hollywood too, but as her stand-in in the film. And then it's lights, camera, kidnap. Um, and one of the twins, I shan't say which one, but I think you'll know, uh, Tallulah, uh, she goes missing on set. Then Evie must choose between becoming a star herself and taking her place or rescuing her sister. So I've told you the whole plot now. Uh, <laughs> But it's still worth a read. I love your little tagline, lights, camera, kidnap. What a great little <laughs> tagline that is. Well, that, that, that goes back to my my advertising background <laughs> and uh, getting used to doing snappy headlines, you see. So it finally coming useful. Yeah, fantastic. So you mentioned that the sibling rivalry is the, the heart of your novel between Evie and Tallulah. And, of course, someone in the... In the um, one of them being a, a megastar, an actress, and the other one being a stand-in is like the ultimate rivalry, isn't it? So can you tell us a little bit about their characters, what their similarities are, what their differences are? Sure. So there's, well, there's 12-year-old Evie, and she's really the protagonist. And she's, I don't like to use the word tomboy um, because it's a little bit 1970s, but tomboy. Um, and she loves sword fighting and is totally camera shy she's more of a tree climber than someone who wants to be showing up on the stage um and she very much lives in the shadow of her sister Tallulah who is the darling of the family and she is this budding acting talent she's full of chat and charisma um and she's very much more I suppose the the more uh, traditionally feminine one um someone pointed this out to me that they're almost like two sides of of being a girl in a way um because they are the the you know they are the the same and, and different and you know they they do have this sort of love hate relationship so where did the idea for the novel come from then was it was it the rivalry that began or was it uh going back to your career and thinking about your fencing career well interestingly enough so um I 
I started this while working with Chicken House. So it was a slightly unusual way to start because um, they already knew they wanted to uh, me to write something with them. And so it was very much a, a collaboration, which I guess is quite unusual uh, for, for, for a debut. Um, but they, they loved the idea of fencing, as did I, because of my background as an Olympic fencer and that being a great hook um actually Barry Cunningham who runs Chicken House came to me and said we love the fencing how about fencing in the movies because uh for children's literature fencing uh fencing to the death is uh, a little bit too a little bit extreme yeah. it's the, <laughs> sword fighting is a brilliant thing but you can't kill anyone in in children's fiction so there are some limitations around that so the idea of bringing fencing and the uh, into the movies was you know felt a lot more palatable um and as it happens the movies is something i know a little about because i work as an advertising creative director so i spend lots of time on set and that world combined with the world of fencing felt like something that I could really easily write to. Mm. Um, and there was that. And then I laid onto it the idea of sibling rivalry. It just really appealed to me. And I have two brothers. So <laughs> the world of sibling rivalry is something that I've grown up with, as many people do. And I think it's just something that's a fascinating, um, fascinating thing for most kids. Anyone who's not an only child will have some sibling rivalry. And if not sibling rivalry, there'll be rivalry and friendships. And that's the thing that, especially at that, those formative years you're really grappling with Mm. so I want to touch a little bit on your I guess your writing journey your writing career to this point had you always wanted to write for children because you mentioned working with chicken house in a quite an unusual way so I guess had writing for children always been an ambition of yours writing had always been an ambition and I did English literature at uni and I think at the time I thought oh I'll be a journalist and then realized that wouldn't be a great idea and then decided oh I'm going to go into advertising and write for advertising because at the time uh, it just seemed an impossible dream to be an author so I'd always thought vaguely about writing and write the craft of writing has always been in, in my life but uh, as I got older, I finally plucked up the courage to to do writing for real, as I'll call it. Then I started thinking about doing picture books and then moved on to middle grade. That's where I found my home was. And I don't think it's really, in my head, it's not really writing for children. It's just writing for really engaged readers who happen to be children. Mm. And the that's... That genre for me is really exciting. Middle grade books um, is the world of, you know, Harry Potter, Philip Pullman, Catherine Rundle. Um, and so I was just, I, I'm excited by reading those books. And so I want to write books like that. Mm. And I've been speaking to a couple of other children's writers recently. And I think it's a much harder job in terms of plotting and structuring your story because 
for a lot of children, they are maybe reluctant readers or struggle to concentrate and you've got to be as exciting as YouTube and Netflix for them. Mm. So do you think that's a, a different level of uh, complexity and a different challenge for you to make sure that your story is so engaging that they're going to stick with it? I think that children are pretty judgy readers in a way. There's there's just no messing around with them. And if they don't like your book or are bored by it, they just put it down. And they there's no sense of guilt that they should finish this book because other people have said that it's, it's good. Yeah. If, if they don't think it's good, they will, it will die. So every page has to be gripping mm. and there's no space for purple prose or anything like that. So it, it does really keep you honest in that way. And that there are a tough, a tough audience. Some people have said, oh, it's, it's nice to start with children and then you might graduate to adults. And I'm not sure I see it that way. No, not at all. I, I see it as quite a different skill. And I certainly feel like you've got to be someone who is really, like you said, you, you can't be just good at writing pretty sentences. And this is what I always say to friends of mine is that I know that I can write a nice sentence. It's the story side <laughs> that is the hard bit. And I think for kids particularly, you've really got to nail your story. And it's got, you say, every page has got to be good and every page has got to be exciting. So in that case, then, are you someone that plots? Are you a planner? Um, or are you going to tell me and shock me that you're not a planner? No, I'm a massive planner. I'm a massive planner. <laughs> uh, if, if, I, if that, yes, that's the, perhaps the only area of my life I am a massive planner, but I, I really, really am. And I have to be super super structured I think there there are moments where you, where one has to move between being a, a potter and a pantser as they call them um because otherwise you're not really allowing the story to flow but I will plot the whole thing out and then right through it and sometimes it goes in a slightly different direction than I imagined but then I'm going back through and spending a lot of time with those little cards and sticking post-it notes on walls <laughs> and structuring, structuring, structuring as I go through and, and trying to go back to the original premise of the story all the time and just checking if this storyline connects back to the theme and this connects back and making sure every scene has a reason to be there so that it's moving the the story forward so yeah I think the plot ha has to be really really tight mm. with, with children, children's literature particularly yeah so going back to your kind of two areas of expertise then so the the novel is set on a Hollywood film set and it's all about the glitz and the glam and the excitement of this world which I think is a really appealing setting for a novel as well and I was you've mentioned that your work in advertising has really helped you build this environment because you know it so well so I guess for you it was easy you didn't have to do too much research in terms of how a set worked you knew it already um yeah I was I did very little research <laughs> um well they do say like, right what you know, I know. Uh, yeah. so it's, you know it's, it's really lovely actually when you just know all those things and then you have to do a little bit of internet research 
but it's pretty much there because you can really feel it. So I haven't had to do that on, on this book. My next book is slightly different. Um, that one is about the elite world gymnastics. So for that, I am going to have to do a lot more research. Mm. But for this one, it was a bit of a gift in a way. Yeah. So my husband um, is a director and he directs TV commercials. So our world at home is very much full of the film sets, film world, all those references. Mm. Um, so, so that came came quite easy. And also we've mentioned your your history of fencing you um are an olympic fencer and so so fighting and fencing plays such an important role in this novel was it a challenge for you to translate something you know so well onto the page because obviously you're used to doing it physically but translating that into fiction perhaps there were elements that you thought you were maybe over describing it or under describing it how was that for you to to write about fencing Funny enough, the the action sequences, when I got into them, I would act them, I would find myself acting them out too, and I'd never thought about them in that way. So there is an advantage in it. I know exactly what what happens and the feelings of it. But what I sort of discovered is that what I would find exciting isn't always what is exciting in a story right and so i'd have to extrapolate that and sort of simplify and stop myself from getting into too much ridiculous technical detail but the feedback i got is that actually kids really like that detail mm. and that that knowledge and a little bit of knowing special vocabulary and things like that so as long as uh, you don't overwhelm there's a real advantage with that. Yeah, because I've seen a couple of photos from events you've done and you've built <laughs> some of that fencing stuff into the, event, the events, haven't you? Well, it's, it's an easy win in a way. And actually, I love it, though. And you get a sword out in front of a couple of hundred kids and it just really lifts the room. Mm. And then I start doing a little bit of running around and doing some moves uh, and get a couple of kids to come up and do some saluting. And then with it all sort of fired up, then I read them a first chapter. So, and then they can really imagine it because they say yeah. that they know, you know, what you mean when you're like, this is a lunge and this is a parry. Um, so I get very hammy and theatrical. <laughs> <laughs> I never knew that would happen to me. You know? <laughs> well, I don't know about, about you, but, but any, any school trip, it was like straight to the gift shop, straight to the swords, you know. So I think it's another winner. Yeah. <laughs> Kids love a sword, it turns yeah, out. Exactly. Yeah. So all good children's books come away, you come away from them with a kind of a bigger message, a bigger theme. So what is it you hope that readers will feel when they finish Sister to a Star? Well, the the theme is really about sibling rivalry and that is often our first experience of dealing with competition. And it will be something that, that runs through all, all of our lives. So really the message of the book is about 
not comparing ourselves to to others and to follow your own path and just be the best you could be and there's a a a fencing coach in the story and his sort of motto to them is always be the best you can be and don't worry about everyone else and I think there's a real truth in that and there's a real truth in that for for Evie who defines herself by who who she isn't Mm. um and and the, the shadow she lives behind and actually what she needs to do through that story is really realize that there are there is another way to to be a success and she just needs to focus on being you know the being the best her she can be and 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 separate herself out of this sort of slightly toxic sibling rivalry and we've already talked briefly about your advertising career and how that might help you with your taglines and your pitching and I <laughs> saw a tweet from you where you said you think that um your career in advertising has helped you as a children's writer because you're good at understanding silly puns and short attention spans (laughs) so do you think those aspects the silly puns and the short attention spans are key to engaging children in reading yes and I think more than that the the advertising it teaches this deep respect for your reader's time because that's something that is in advertising you're banged over the head about because nobody wants to look at ads and so you have to find ways to be exciting and to disrupt and to engage and that that sort of teaches you to avoid purple prose and flabby pot uh, flabby plots uh, and not be boring you know uh, I have I have that written above my laptop. Don't be boring, um, <laughs> and I think it's a really useful thing to just keep reminding yourself this that, that this is somebody else's time that you're taking up. So you really have to continually earn it. So I think that's what advertising mm. teaches me. I think, of course, there's a lot of craft skills that writing for advertising teaches you. You know, for years and years of writing tv commercials and and head silly headlines that there's a lot of practical things that makes then transitioning to becoming an author um an easier journey Mm. i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Let's talk about that journey then, because you mentioned that you were kind of working in a different way with Chicken House in that they kind of 
you were working with them and they came to you with a idea for a novel I wondered whether you could tell us kind of how that came about because um that's quite obviously quite unusual yeah so I started off I I started off at, I did the Curtis Brown creative course and they they did a sort of uh, children's writing course and I did a first draft with them and then I didn't quite have the confidence to send it out into the world so I tried uh, I went to the Golden Egg Academy which is a really um is like a specialist children's writing course and they saw it and they were like oh we love it we need to give you some mentoring so I did a couple of drafts with them and they have a first look deal with Chicken House. Right. So I, so then Barry Cunningham at Chicken House saw it and without anyone else in the world seeing it, he was like, nope, I'll have it and let's do a two book deal. And then I worked with Chicken House on, on that manuscript. And in the end, it, that did that manuscript didn't see the light of day possibly because it was about fencing but in a much in, in a world where people could die and yeah. um, and i think the reality of that was maybe a little bit too dark mm. but they loved the writing and they loved the fencing and there was a lot it was a lot to love and so after i got over the disappointment of that they were like come on let's let's we're gonna do this two book deal and but what we love is you to uh, to write another fencing book, but something that's a little bit more palatable, less gory, <laughs> and more glitz and glamour, you know. <laughs> so, and then that's that's how that that came to be. So, in some ways, um, it's always disappointing if your first manuscript doesn't see the light of day. But I would not be unusual, you know. I think on average, most first-time authors will have um, written about three books before that one gets published so uh, it wasn't the end of the world and actually sometimes I, I sort of look back on it now and I'm like well maybe it was a gift that mm. that first one that first attempt didn't get published because I learned so much on that and that I didn't have to expose to the world so I didn't have to expose to the world all my mistakes I would just mm. expose them you know a fewer fewer mistakes hopefully in sister to a star so, so was all this done without an agent? Have you got an agent now? What's... Oh, no, so I did okay. get an agent. I did get an agent, but I got the agent sort of the wrong way round in a way because I had got the publishing deal already. Right. And then I got Jodie Hodges at United. Mm. Brilliant. But it was a slightly odd way in. Yeah. So. Although you're not the first person I've spoken to that that went about it that way so I don't know how unusual it is I think the the odd thing about publishing is there's so many different routes you know and there's no one strict yeah. way of doing it which is which is probably a gift and maybe a curse to some people I don't know but um <laughs> but you mentioned this manuscript that never saw the light of day and I and I I, I imagine you feel similar to me and I don't feel like it's wasted time because you learn a lot from it but at the same time you were so close it's going to be gutting to know that you were nearly there you I mean you had you had the book deal you had the agent and I know I got very close to not getting a book deal 
and it almost feels like you know falling over before you reach the finishing line and it's hard so how did you manage to kind of obviously you had the the publisher's support but how did you manage to kind of pick yourself up and carry on going and think I have got another idea in me because I imagine it must have been quite hard to start again think as an author you're going to have to be so resilient that if I fell over on that first hurdle I I might as well never have started in a way and what I realize now is that there is hurdle after hurdle after hurdle you've really got to love what you do Mm. and be okay if your first book has mediocre sales and your second one does and your third does if you are getting the chance to write and get published that's a, that's a great win um I was so pleased when I saw uh, there's a author called Phil Earl who won the Nibbies not very long ago uh for When the Sky Falls which was a brilliant book and it's like that his 20th book and I just thought that's that's someone to aspire to. Yeah. You know, you don't want to aspire to the debut author who just smashes it on their first yeah. time. You've <laughs> got to sometimes give yourself a little bit of a break and go, I would like to be that author mm. who just is given the gift of being allowed to be published for as many times as it takes to get to writing the your best books. Yeah. You know. And I think that's the more common journey. It's just that there is, I mean, I've got a podcast called Confessions of a Debut Novelist, but <laughs> there's a lot of pressure on debuts yeah. for that to be your big hit. And then yeah. if it's not, it it for a lot of writers, it isn't your first book. It's your third book, your fifth book, your seventh mm-hmm. book. And like you say, it's nice to just have a career and nice to be published and to hope that, you're going to keep getting these book deals and not feel like, I mean, imagine it must be incredibly hard for writers that have an amazing deal for their first book. And then perhaps their second book doesn't do so well because then you have even more of a pressure on you because you're seen as this, you know, mega star from day one. And it's not giving people the time to develop, I think. So it's a different kind of pressure. Yeah. And I think there's, always going to be this strange angsty pressure Mm. on authors whereby you feel like your book should do this or it should do that but the way I've tried to stop myself going mildly mad is is by saying what I really want out of this book is to get to write another one Mm. and so for me that's that's the goal, really. Yeah, is to and to have a publisher's support to write the next one. You're like, that's that's enough, really. Yeah, that's success. Definitely. So, what has been your favourite part about being a debut author so far? Then, oh, well, <laughs> so there's. I think it's been receiving pictures of kids reading the book especially when they're from my family or friends or people I haven't seen for a long time. And I get, I've got these really sweet pictures of like people who I didn't even know had had a kid. So I hadn't, I haven't been in touch with for years and their kids are reading the book. I think that's just been like, it makes it all worth it, I think. And then the school events are actually 
amazing. They're such, they're exhausting and I feel sick to the stomach <laughs> before they happen. But then when they do and you get some kids who've actually read your book and they'll talk to you about the characters, like the characters are real and you're talking about a mutual friend, mm. then it just makes it all worth it. And you're like, this is why I do this. Yeah, um, I have to say, I'm the same as you, hearing from readers is, is such a joy and it must be even nicer to hear from children who are reading it because I think, you know, that kids, like, you, like we've said, kids are not shy in coming forward. If they haven't enjoyed it, they will tell you, but the kids that yeah. love it will really love it and that must be a lovely feeling to hear from them. Yeah, it's very true. So what advice do you have for anyone that's listening to this episode that is maybe thinking about, writing for children or is working on a children's book right now what advice would you give to them I would say don't write about things you think kids are gonna like um because it's probably been written and I would focus on making it personal and writing what you love because there's a thousand books already about pirates that turn into dinosaurs or whatever and there's a million cliches and I would approach it in the way you approach adult fiction in that you wouldn't just go oh I know kids like mermaids and mm. helicopters I'll put the two together um you know you wouldn't I don't do know. that I, I, I quite fancy that book now what monkey tennis yes um so I think you have to kind of go what is it that I really care about what I really want to write about and can sit with for two years potentially mm. because certainly for me right it's like therapy so you need a really nutty problem that you're trying to understand it's something about you know the way the world works something you care about exploring and that maybe you don't know the answer at the beginning. And I think that's really exciting is when you don't really know what you think about, say, sibling rivalry. You don't, you know, you know it's a knotty problem, but what what should, how should you respond um, to sibling rivalry? How should you respond? if you're the one in the family who doesn't get all the attention how you know how do you deal with a more um successful sibling those sort of questions were things that i was exploring and solving in my own mind as i was writing the book mm -hmm. and i think if you've got something that is sort of really uh, fixating for yourself then that comes over and finally we've already talked about it very very briefly so we know it's about the world of gymnastics but can you tell us a bit <laughs> more about what you're working on next well it, I, mean, it, I mean I don't know if there are any other gymnastics thrillers in the world so this may well be a world first who knows it, so the working title is backflip it'll probably change but it's about this 
uh, 12-year-old girl, Pearl, and she dreams of being a top gymnast. Um, but when she's selected for this elite training camp, she realizes someone is causing malicious injuries. And so it's really a story of can she make it through without falling victim herself? So again, there's like themes of of sort of rivalry and then being a super competitive environment so that that kind of competitive sport mentality mm. but also just quite a lot of danger and peril so <laughs> it's so much fun finding out all about all about gymnastics which is a dark dark sport in terms <laughs> of well, I'm sure you'll have an absolutely great time doing all the research for that novel. And I think it will be brilliant. And I think, like you say, a lot of peril in the world of gymnastics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Eloise, for joining me on the podcast today. It's been a pleasure, Chloe. That was Eloise Smith talking about her middle grade novel, Sister to a Star, which is out now and available to buy. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,